Hey, everyone. It's Amber. In 2019, I began work on a podcast series that explored how historically marginalized groups were underrepresented in the IBD space. The plan was to record episodes during the spring conferences of 2020 with a goal of publishing in the fall of that same year. As you already know, those conferences didn't happen. I pivoted to recording remotely and finally published the seven-episode series in the spring of 2021. What you're about to hear next is an episode of that series, which is called Healthcare Disparities in IBD. I'm the host and producer, but it's a different animal from about IBD with a focused topic and some voices that haven't been heard on this feed before. Much has changed since the production of this series in 2021, but our discussions are still relevant in so many ways. While working on this show, I learned more things than I can list, and I hope you get a little something out of it too. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Episode 6 of Healthcare Disparities in IBD. I'm your host, Amber Tresca. In this limited series, we'll explore how inequalities in the healthcare system affect people of color and members of the LGBTQIA community who live with an IBD. My guest is Brooke Abbott of the Crazy Creole Mommy Chronicles and the co-founder of IBD Moms. She worked in entertainment prior to her diagnosis of ulcerative colitis and now focuses on political activism in the IBD space. She's currently pursuing a degree in public policy and political science. Brooke and I founded IBD Moms together in order to support moms and moms-to-be who are touched by IBD. She brought me into the public policy space, and we lobby on Capitol Hill together several times a year. She is the perfect person to help us understand how public policy can help or harm people who live with an IBD. In this discussion, you'll learn how lack of access to educational opportunities affects the healthcare space, how some provisions in the Affordable Care Act help reduce disparities, and why access to technology is an important part of healthcare. From Los Angeles, California, let's talk to Brooke Abbott. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to me about healthcare disparities in the IBD space. Thank you for having me, Amber. I think you're the perfect person to talk about this. And there's several different reasons why. The first thing I want to note, though, for listeners is that you and I are friends. Uh, We're also (laughs) partners. We founded IBD Moms together. So that is in the background. But I will still say that I think that you are still the right person to talk about how we can look at legislation and how we can think about it in terms of reducing the healthcare disparities in IBD. First, though, I want you to give our listeners an idea of your background and your experience um, so that they don't have to take my word for it. Uh, (laughs) So let me know about some of the healthcare uh, policy work you've done in the past, the lobbying that you've done, and then also maybe uh, a little bit about your current course of study and where you hope to go with that. Well, well, first of all, thank you so much for making me feel good uh, about myself. uh, That was very nice. That's my job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, 
I am a policy junkie. I, that's that's who I am. I'm I'm just one of those nerds that sits up and watches C-SPAN in the background all day long, um, and reads Congress.gov as if you know it were a new novel. So I am a patient. I'm a patient advocate, but I mostly focus on policy because I feel like that is the backbone of our healthcare system. Unfortunately, I, I don't necessarily believe. Uh, personally, that healthcare is political, but it is political for us. And so that is why uh, I choose to focus my advocacy work in the legislative space, uh, because I believe that's where the, the real solutions are. A little bit of background, I was working in Hollywood for a long time before I got sick. Um, and then I got sick and then I became a stay at home mom and then I became an advocate. And then I started using my hobby of following legislation, um, into real work. And that included going to the Hill and lobbying with, you know, good folks like you and, uh, foundations like the Crohn's and colitis foundation and the digestive disease national coalition and taking the relationships that I had already had, you know, personal relationships that I had had on the Hill and kind of creating new uh, relationships with legislative aides and members of Congress um, to push the proper healthcare agenda. And then uh, in 2019, I decided to go back to school because I had to quit school because of IBD. And um, I decided to focus in policy, uh, public policy and, and uh, political science to hopefully one day professionally lobby for those who cannot speak for themselves and make this a full-time thing instead of something that I just dabble in. So that's me. Uh, I wouldn't call you a dabbler, especially because I still have so much trouble finding my way around congress.gov. Yeah. And I just want to explain like really briefly that that is where you can go and find, and you know more about this than I do, like I said, I still cannot find my way around that site very well. But that's where you can go and you can look up all of the bills. You can read the wording. Sometimes it's like reading stereo instructions, but sometimes they're very clear and you know your mileage may vary on that. But that's where you find the bills. You can assess for yourself what they look like, how they might have impact, and then you can get all the information about who sponsored them, what Congress people sponsored them, and then also who has signed on to them. Is that accurate? What else? Yes. And and one of my favorite things about that is that you can make alerts for your representatives or the representatives that are that participate in the Crohn's and Colitis con- uh, Caucus, for example. So you know what pieces of legislation they're sponsoring or co-sponsoring. And a sponsor is when that legislator actually creates the policy or the piece of legislation or they're working with someone if they're co-sponsoring. So sometimes you'll see um, under a bill, it'll say sponsored and it'll say like, for instance, uh, your senator is Chris Murphy and it'll say Chris Murphy and then it'll say uh, Lisa Murkowski as co-sponsor and uh, Doug Jones. He's no longer in Congress, but he was one of my favorites. Um, Doug Jones as a co-sponsor. And so though that means that Chris Murphy went and created that policy and then he went to his friends on both sides of the aisle and he's like, hey, you want to be on this bill with me and help me get votes and uh, create the policy? And they're like, sure. And so then their legislative aides create little 
pieces to add to it. And then they, so then they sign their name to it and then they call their other friends and they're like, Hey, I just hooked up with Chris Murphy and we decided to create this piece of policy. And this is what it is, the, the gist of it. And we were wondering, can you co-sponsor with this? And, and Cory Booker's like, of course, I love Chris Murphy. I'll totally sign my name. So then he signs his name and then he calls someone else and they're like, oh, uh, hi, Susan Collins. How are you doing? I'm good. Okay. Can you sign this piece of legislation? Next thing you know, there's like 18 co-sponsors and they're from both sides of the aisle. Um, And then that continues to go until they're able to send it to committee. Right. That's great. Thank you so much for that explanation. And then you were coming up with the hypothetical, but we actually do have a real piece of legislation that was just introduced by, yes, my senator, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, and then also, I believe, a senator from Missouri. Yes. Chris Murphy is a Democrat. The senator from Missouri is a Republican. Who I really like, by the way, Roy Blunt. He does a lot of bipartisan work, and, and actually, in his, he's got this really cool thing in his office where he's got all the bills that he sponsored that have been turned into law. And it literally starts at, um, I think it's Clinton, and it goes all the way down to Trump. And it literally takes up this entire wall. And I, I, one of the reasons why I loved it so much is because you can see his work, his body of work, his actual governing. And, and whereas uh, some of those, you know, bills and resolutions, I don't necessarily politically agree with. What I love about it is that he is getting the work done and he is making it happen. And it's throughout, you know, different administrations. Um, and that was just, that was very cool. So, yeah. And Roy Blunt is, is very much a healthcare um, advocate. And, Again, this you just gave a perfect example of why you are the person to speak on this, because you know these things, and I do not. Um, so this uh, bill Chris Murphy is sponsoring with Senator Blunt, mm-hmm. and you contacted me about it just a few days ago, and you said, hey, the information is not up on congress.gov yet, the wording of the bill. Do you think you can get a hold of someone on the senator's staff and get that wording? And I was like, sure. So I tried to get in contact with uh, the person that I have worked with in that office in the past. And this is very illustrative. Just this little thing that's gone on over the past couple of days between you and me and Senator Murphy's office is so illustrative of why lobbying is important and why our going there with our bodies and getting in front of people and making the contact and getting their business cards and getting on their emails are now in COVID times. We've been doing it all remotely. We still get on phone calls with them. That's so important because that means that we could actually get a copy of of this bill. We know how to do that. We can read about it and understand it and then make our own decisions about it and then engage the patient community on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a little bit of why it's so important that patients get involved in working in lobbying and healthcare legislation. In terms of things that we have now, in preparation, doing some research, talk to you about this. I'm searching through congress.gov. I'm looking at other places. I really don't see a lot of things in place that directly address 
healthcare disparities. And I'm talking about racial and ethnic minority groups here. I'm not talking about legislation that benefits everyone. Mm -hmm. We can have legislation that should benefit everyone, but sometimes, or a lot of times, maybe maybe it's fair to say a lot of times, people still get left behind because it doesn't necessarily get implemented in the way that it was intended. Mm -hmm. So do we have anything in place that, did I miss something that can help IBD patients? Yes and no. (laughs) Um, You know, that's such a, it's, it's a hard question because you want bills to be like in your face. This is what it is completely clear. It's for healthcare. But a lot of times you have what they call, you know, pork, you have these, these little pieces of, information and and uh, things that could help the community that are pushed into other bills that are kind of hidden so you wouldn't know that they're there or um we have bills that were introduced last year that you know got good traction and then the new congress came and you know now they have to be reintroduced so there are pieces of legislation that are constantly being worked on uh you know for example everyone talks about the ACA but or at the Affordable Care Act, but what makes the Affordable Care Act go are all the other supplemental bills that help, like, you know, the budget for research and development, you know, step therapy reform would help the ACA a whole lot, the increases in, you know, helping farmers and food disparities would help with nutrition, which help would help with some of the, you know, disparities that the ACA can't cover, you know, all those little things. But again, every Congress, it has to be reintroduced. So that's why it's kind of a scramble game. Um, that's why when I'm, if you've ever been on the Hill with me, you see I'm slightly frantic in my, I don't know, quest <laughs> to get an answer from people because, we only have that year. And within that year, granted, they're in Congress quite a bit, but they're still, you know, they take all of August off. There's the holiday breaks. You know, there's just time where Congress is sitting still. And there are only so many hours in the day. And to be perfectly honest, people in Congress only work Monday through Thursday. Most of the time, they take Friday, not that they take Friday off, but they are traveling back home to their constituents or to, to their families, uh, you know, fair enough, um, on Friday. So Friday through Sunday, nothing really gets done, but Monday through Thursday. And then you've got a certain amount of weeks at the beginning of the year, the cycle starts all over again and you've got to get reintroduced. You've got to get new co-sponsors. You got to get through, get it through committee. Then you got to get it to the president. And if it does not get through to committee, You've got to start again by finding someone new to reintroduce it or the same person. But usually, unless it's a really important bill, you got to find someone else to reintroduce it because, you know, someone has changed their legislative agenda or that person in Congress is no longer available. For example, one of the best pieces of legislation for Black mothers to ever cross Congress, but it didn't go anywhere. And there's a very good reason why. So, um, my old senator, uh, Senator Kamala Harris, uh, started. Your old senator, old I'm senator. laughing. You say your old, old senator. senator. She was, a, she served one term, right? Right, right, right. 
<laughs> and now she's vice and president. Now she's, so yes, yes. Matt, now she's like at the big guns. But you're right. This is a perfect example of Bill being introduced. Yeah. And then it kind of got halted for a very specific reason. Right. So go right ahead. So w- what's so interesting is the very first day that she was in office, we happened to be on the Hill that day. And it was the very first day that, I'm sorry, it was her very first week, and it was her health legislative aide that was his very first day. He had just walked in right before our meeting. And he sat down, and he literally said, I want to hear your stories, but I want to tell you what our plan is. And I just got our plan this morning at my meeting. And he gave us a whole list of what she wanted to do, what she wanted to accomplish over the next four years. And in that was uh, colorectal cancer research increase because her mother passed away from colorectal cancer. Her mother was a, a, a scientist who studied breast cancer and worked on grants for the NIH, but she ended up passing away of colorectal cancer. And so they, they wanted to increase the colorectal uh, cancer research. Uh, they wanted to increase nutrition for uh, parents who of low income and uh, nutrition for chronically ill pediatric patients and uh, black maternal health. And they were like, this is what we're doing. And so for the next three years, we worked with them to continue to reintroduce budget increases for colorectal cancer, colorectal uh, cancer screenings, all of that. Um, and she, every year, continued to sign on to those things and help us get co-sponsors and continue to move forward with step therapy reform and uh, the Medical Nutrition Equity Act. And then 2019, her legislative aide reached out to me and said, we are working on this. This is what's coming down the pipeline. And it was an extensive a black maternal health bill uh, that did more than just bring awareness. It was actual like help with lactation um, consulting because a lot of times black mothers will ask for lactation consultants and their requests will be ignored or the lactation consultant will only work with them for a day. Um, there was postpartum doulas. There was, you know, making sure that the, the disparities in certain clinics uh, were focused on all mothers and, making sure that everyone had, you know, equal uh, medical care, um, especially for moms who had chronic conditions. And so there was a bill in the House, there was a, a twin bill in the House, and then there was one in the Senate. The one in the House was championed by, oh, I can't remember her name, but she's still in Congress. Um, and then Kamala Harris had this one in the Senate. And then she decided to run for president. <laughs> it's like... What are you guys doing? (laughs) (laughs) I literally remember the day she announced and I sent a message to her legislative aide and I was like, you guys are killing me. You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me. And she was like, don't worry, we're going to get this through, I promise. So it had to be, she had introduced it and it had to be reintroduced in the Senate. And so she reintroduced it. She got all these co-sponsors. They had this huge, massive, you know, uh, campaign. And then she dropped out of the presidential race. And I got an email saying she's completely, you know, focused on this and we're going to get this passed and it's going to happen. And if it doesn't get passed this year, we'll take it up next year. I promise it's going to go. And then she got picked for vice president. I was like, <laughs> oh, so sneaky. Oh, it's, like a, it's such a 
such a case of like, like good news, bad news, right? Like, like I was like, oh yay! Like first black Southeast Asian uh, vice president. I'm so excited! Oh my god, first woman vice president ever! Like most powerful woman in the world. Ah, wait, hold on. Uh, I need my bill signed. <laughs> <laughs> but that's you know that's how it goes that's you know uh for the safe step uh therapy act actually doug jones is no longer in congress he was one yeah. of the you know co-sponsors and major uh he he really did help get a lot of co-sponsors for that particular bill and now it's got to be you know reintroduced so things in the ACA that when I say ACA, Affordable Care Act, that's generally how you and I refer to it, I think. Um, I know when I write about it, that's how I refer to it. Some people refer to it as Obamacare. Obama refers to it as Obamacare. I I know. know, It's kind of like, I think it started out as something that was supposed to be derogatory, but it's kind of come around and we just sort of refer to it that way. But I will admit that every time I write about it, I, I say the ACA, and I will put in parentheses, sometimes called Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some things in there that are helpful, I think, though, in a sort of roundabout way in helping reduce uh, disparities for racial and ethnic minority groups. What are some of those things? Uh, the big one is mental health care. You may have some therapists that have gotten around the Medicaid, receiving Medicaid uh, insurance. But it has actually opened up the avenue for a lot of new therapists um, and specialized therapists, like people who specialize in chronic conditions or, you know, grief or whatever the case is. And so that is a big one. Mental health is covered. And I think a lot of people don't know that. I think a lot of people uh, don't realize that dental health is covered. And it also provided a lot of money for clinics that can provide free services such as mental health, dental health, and vision. In Los Angeles, we have uh, the Queens Care Clinic. Um, It's like a, I think it's, I think it's funded partly by the Catholic Church, but it also receives like federal aid. And the reason why they're able to have so many of their mobile clinics is because the Affordable Care Act allowed for a certain amount of money to go toward communities where the the salary medium is, you know, under $20,000 or $30,000 and in r- rural areas. So, if you have like a lot of farmers and they're unable to get to the bigger IBD centers or whatever, or are able to go to, you know, dentists out in the big cities, um, these mobile care, care clinics will come out to those areas and they'll have their clinic weeks. And it's not, it, before it was like a day and everybody had to scramble to go to get those days. But now with a little bit of a Google search, you are able to find mobile care clinics that will be out in your area for a week. And they should be doing mental health care checks. They should be doing physicals. They should be doing vision, dental, um, and taking care of pediatric patients. It has also helped with subsidies for nutrition for seniors. Um, During this pandemic period, I know here in Los Angeles County, we've had um, a system where uh, the city has, has paid restaurants to deliver food for the week for seniors in the area. And all they had to do was sign up 
you know, unfortunately, those budgets didn't kind of go toward like website planning and the websites are a little wonky. Um, it does take some patience. And that's my only issue. I think in a perfect world, um, I would want to remind people that the digital space and making sure that the digital space is clear and concise and easy for everyone to navigate because not everyone has, you know, an 11 year old grandson that they can ask to sign them up to get their vaccine or whatever. So, um, but yeah, there, there are so many little things. It just takes a, a quick Google search. And I know, unfortunately, a lot of us don't have the time to do that, but we are missing out on things that are provided for us. It's, it's, not necessarily free because we pay taxes, so we pay for it, um, but it's there for us. And, you know, one thing I will say about the Affordable Care Act, you know, there were things that the president went around saying could be done. They were not done in the final bill. And that's just because he spoke before the bill actually passed. What he was doing was he was trying to get everyone to talk to their member of Congress to to get that to pass, right? So he was he was hyping everybody up so that everybody would call in and be like, I want that ACA, I want that Obamacare, you know, vote for it. Well, between that and the bill actually passing, there were like 160 amendments to that bill. Uh, there was a lot of compromise. And even though not one single Republican voted in favor of the Affordable Care Act, a lot of their amendments were passed into the Affordable Care Act. And so the things that we were hearing from the HHS and the president and the vice president for a year leading up to the vote wasn't necessarily necessarily reflective in the bill. However, that doesn't mean the bill can't be changed. And that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of great things in the bill. And, you know, we know that we can have our kids covered up until they're 26 and, you know, all those other like really cool things. But I think what's really important is that if you make a certain amount of money and you are able to do the public care option, you do have your vision covered. You do have your dental covered. You do have mental health covered. You just have to kind of search for it. Yeah. And that's a big issue as well. And something that I have been learning a little bit more about just in working with people in my own community and thinking about, okay, you need to access this particular website in order to receive this particular service. But if you don't have the technology that is needed in order to best view it and work with it, it's really a struggle, yeah. you know? And so then you're almost reliant or you are reliant on literally someone to help you, whether that's a friend or whether that's going to the public library or whatever it is. It is a real problem. I think that's a real uh, gap as well that I didn't really address in this series of episodes, although I talked about it a little bit in my episode with uh, Melody Blackwell, and she was talking about the same thing that you're talking about, like mobile clinics, and that that is probably our best way for, at least in the short term, to start helping people with IBD receive more comprehensive and specialized care mm. when they are in an area that does not have an IBD center or something like that. I do want to add that there was something that I thought was so progressive that was initially added into the bill. But I, I think that people felt it was 
government overreach, but those who thought it was government overreach had access and didn't think about how much a cell phone and internet costs for a family of two or three, or maybe even just a single person making under $15,000 a year. It was citywide internet, free internet, and a small cell phone that uh, wasn't necessarily like a high-tech phone, but it allowed you to search the internet. It allowed you to have an email address. It allowed you to have the basics that we need. Um, These are no longer luxuries. Having an email address is no longer a luxury. Having access to the internet is no longer a luxury. Uh, Being able to utilize a search engine is no longer a luxury. Everyone needs some sort of mechanism to communicate on the internet. And now that we're in this pandemic period and you have patients who are who don't have COVID, but they're chronically ill and they need to be able to access their doctors and have these telehealth visits, a citywide internet that they could have access at any anywhere that they are, because a lot of people have been displaced by this pandemic. And having a phone that allows you to use utilize the internet to be able to do a telehealth appointment or sign up for a COVID test or sign up for your COVID vaccine, or be able to just get the information about what's happening in your city with the numbers of COVID patients rising. So those are basic needs that we that are universal, and they're not luxuries. And so that was something that was in there that is no longer. Um, but it's something that we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about the fact that We want people to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, but a lot of people in this country no longer have boots. What, what, where do we go from here? Is there anything currently in the pipeline and the new Congress just came into session and they're dealing with a lot of other issues right now, which is probably an understatement. (laughs) But um, I feel like there's not much yet introduced that can really work towards reducing disparities right now, especially with Vice President Harris's bills, I guess, not being championed right now. Yeah, I, you know, the biggest thing right now, I think <clears throat> we need every every member of Congress focused on is COVID relief because COVID relief is so broad, right? You've got businesses, you've got schools, you've got healthcare, you've got, you know, just rent, basic living, food, um, all of it. We are in a serious crisis. So, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to be like, oh, you know, other healthcare needs are not important because they really are. But you and I can't get to our normal doctor visits right now because the hospitals are overwrought and, you know, they are lacking support. And our kids are losing their minds in our households because they can't get to school because the schools don't have budgets. So to in order to help keep you know make the school safe. So the the number one priority is going to be covid relief, you know, especially because black and brown communities have been hit the hardest with disparities with lack of access. Um we need 
universal testing. We need a vaccine education rollout. Uh, the, the government should be throwing so much money behind education about the vaccine um, for communities of color because rightfully so there is a distrust between the medical community and the black and specifically the black community but black and brown too you know indigenous people have been left on their own brown people have been left on their own black people you know it wasn't you know what 50 years ago how old is my mother <laughs> yeah, you're gonna out her right I'm here. Out her right here now. Uh, it, it, what sixty? She's sixty, so sixty-three years. Before you know, hospitals were segregated. I think my mom was born in a hospital that wasn't segregated, but had been, you know, in Los Angeles County. Not not legally, but they weren't letting folks have their babies there. So this isn't you know like two hundred years ago. We are still coming into you know, a generation's remembering that they were turned away at the hospitals, turned away by doctors because of the color of their skin. So that's in, important to remember. So COVID relief is important right now. That's that's where we are. And everyone's focused on that. Everyone's focused on, you know, assigning cabinet positions and confirming cabinet picks and um, and trying to undo some of the more harmful uh, pieces of legislation, not, uh, I shouldn't say pieces of legislation, executive orders that were passed. Um, because pieces, executive orders are temporary. They're, they're only as good as the next administration who decides to undo them. Um, but pieces of legislation are going to take some time. And so right now they're just kind of focused on making sure that the country heals from the 400,000 plus people that have been lost to us and the businesses that have died and, and, and won't return and the people who are, you know, sleeping in parking lots with their three children. Yeah, you have to stop the bleeding before you yeah. can move on to all of the other injuries. So that's where we're at right now. We will eventually get out from under this. Yeah. I'm saying that with confidence, mostly to myself. But we will get out from under COVID. We are hopefully nearing that, rounding the corner as vaccines are rolling out. Not as quickly as we would like, but here we are. So when this is finished, mm -hmm. we will again want to turn our eyes to all of the other injuries mm -hmm. now that the bleeding has stopped and tell me what you think would be some, and, I, and I'm saying like pie in the sky, like what would you <laughs> like to see passed if you were going to introduce, if you congressperson or Senator Abbott were going to introduce a bipartisan bill to directly help people who are in the IBD space, who are not traditionally thought of, in the IBD space, because they are of a racial or ethnic minority, what would be helpful? Oh, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Give it. Uh, I, you know, my first thing would be doubling the NIH uh, research uh, funding, maybe even tripling it. I'd throw all the money I could at the NIH and the CDC. I would be throwing a lot of money at um, clinical trial education. So making sure that, you know, nonprofits that are working towards including patients of color in clinical trials receive the education that they need in order to boost 
the amount of cooperation from those communities. I think I would be putting a lot of money towards smaller clinics, you know, smaller, smaller clinics getting special specialty uh, clinicians coming in. Um, We see a lot of clinics who have general practitioners and we just don't have enough GIs. We don't have enough GIs coming in and helping. We don't have enough IBD dietitians coming in. We don't have enough uh, rheumatologists coming in. Just people, everyone spread thin. So I think putting money behind HBCUs where they have you know, medical schools that are just poorly funded um, and getting more black and brown doctors graduated and into those clinics to help those communities. Because, you know, representation matters. Uh, We are still fighting this disease of racism and unconscious bias. And so when you have black and brown patients walking into a doctor's office and they don't realize that their unconscious bias is preventing them from uh, understanding someone's pain level or someone's uh, describing their symptoms or, you know, whatever the case is or, or their lifestyle or, you know, just, just their culture. Um, it, it, it can, it can have detrimental effects. And we've seen that over the, the, the course of history. So we need to have more black and brown doctors having access, access to medical school. We need more black patients having more education and more representation. And, and I know that this sounds like terrible, but it takes money. We have to invest in the health wealth of our nation. And that's going to include bringing black and brown brains and hearts and souls and passions into that space. There are people who want to be doctors that don't have access to the education. There are patients who are dealing with chronic conditions, dealing with IBD symptoms right now that don't even know that they are IBD symptoms because they don't have the education to be able to correlate their symptoms with the actual disease. So we've we've got a lot of bridges to build here. And I think that would be my biggest thing. I think I'd be, you know, I, I would I would love to see a lot of bills that are supporting smaller communities. Uh, smaller nonprofits, the NIH, I, I can't stress that enough. The NIH budget increases every year. Everyone sees it. And every time I post about it, they're like, oh, there's, they already passed an increase. Yeah. It covers inflation, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's literally throwing like five nickels at the problem. It is, mm-hmm. you know, it covers studies and labs that are already established and have been established. It does not cover bringing in new scientists and creating new labs and new innovation. The reason why we are seeing so much great technology come out of this COVID vaccine is because we threw all the money at it on a global scale. But really, domestically, we threw more money at this vaccine than we've thrown at the NIH in a very long time. And I know that people are frustrated with, you know, I I hate the term big pharma. Like, it really bothers me because I feel like people don't understand the amount of money that pharma is able to throw at research. 
And really, that research should be done by the scientists at the NIH. And the NIH should not have to close down another lab or lay off another lab student, lab tech, scientist. Like, it shouldn't happen. We should be so focused on making sure that we are doing everything we can to ensure that we are combating every single disease that is on the NIH's agenda. And we're just not doing that because we're, we're finding ways to cut the budget. There are certain budgets that just shouldn't be cut. <laughs> just, you know what I'm saying? You just see, like, you don't, you don't, you don't cut your light bill. <laughs> so why are we cutting the science bill? Like, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. It'll let you cut the light right, bill. They don't, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm so, it, uh, so that's my pie in the sky. You know what's sad though? You know what's really sad, Amber, and what really frustrates me the most? That shouldn't be a pie in the sky want. I know. We have it backwards. We're doing things backwards. It just makes me mad. <laughs> it makes me so mad. Like, Brooke, what's your pie in the sky? You know, it's not, oh, I, you know, would love to see us create unicorns, unicorns. so that we can fly <laughs> across the United States and create technology of hoverboards. That's not my pie in the sky. My pie in the sky is throw some money at the cancer research so we don't have people dying. Brooke Abbott, thank you so much for coming and talking with me about racial and ethnic minorities in the IBD space and how we can use legislation to solve some of these problems. And thank you for being such an amazing advocate and activist in the IBD space. And just personally, thank you for being my friend. Amber, thank you for being my friend. Thanks for having me on here. Honestly, thanks for the, the platform to be able to talk about these things. And I hope that, um, I know I talk very long, but I hope that someone got some information out of it. And I hope that it encourages you to tell your story. Go to ibdmoms.org right now, drop your story in the link. And uh, that's the best way to get started. Healthcare is political. The perspectives of patient activists are key in helping to pass legislation that helps promote equity. When patients are leading the discussions, it helps ensure that we are not left behind when legislation impacts our community. Representation in the IBD space is critical. The voices of people of color and from the LGBTQIA community also need to be included in these conversations. You can follow Brooke Abbott across social media as the Crazy Creole Mommy. Thanks for listening. I'm Amber Tresca, reminding you that healthcare is a human right. Healthcare Disparities in IBD is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Theme music, mix, and sound design is by Cooney Studio.